Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Welcome back to the 32nd episode of Short Talk Talk Podcast. Welcome back to a new episode, and we're back going to the other side of the world. Uh, we're back in the land of kangaroos because we have an Australian writer here today with us. She's been racing recently, very recently, in the Ride London Classic and the Dwarfs London Westhoek. Uh, hopefully, got that right. Uh, probably not, but anyways. And yeah, uh, we have Ma- Maeve Pluff here today with us at DSM Firminich, a uh, brand new name, team, and writer. So how are you today, Maeve? Yeah, really good. Um, actually, not in Australia at the moment. So I'm in the Netherlands because, as you said, I've been racing over here this season. So it's been a big adjustment, um, changing time zones, changing locations, but a really good challenge. How has the season been so far? Uh, you've done quite a bit of racing already. Uh, June, uh, what would you say has been best part? Probably in its entirety, you know, it started out really solid with our sprinter, Charlotta, winning so many stages in the UAE Tour. Um, then we went into the classics and, wow, those were absolutely hectic. Um, I think getting to line up in my first Paris-Roubaix was uh, definitely a highlight. Um, but then we've had some really nice results even since there. Like, so um, Charlotta again won a stage in... Um, well, two stages in Ride London and the GC. So um, to be part of the support team for that was uh, really incredible. Um, and yeah, so it's been really nice kind of learning this new discipline um, of cycling. And what's the season looking like for you? Uh, taking some break right now or straight back into racing again? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a gap right now um, from the road racing um which is quite nice actually because this is my first season where it's just been those back-to-back-to-back races um and it is like your body just goes into fight or flight mode constantly um so I am looking forward to putting in a really solid training block now because I feel like that's what my body needs um but my eyes are on the track world championships in Glasgow at the start of August that's kind of where the next big goal is and I'm so excited to get back on my track bike. And I was going to ask you, uh, track cycling world, world uh, right ahead of, right, oh my God. Track cycling walls are right coming along, uh, two months for that. Uh, you haven't been doing much track this year so far. So how's your preparation going for that? No, I have not been doing that much track at all. And that's a massive difference to my kind of past preps, which have been, full track um but something we identified after Tokyo was that the full track prep just really wasn't working anymore um tracks kind of moving in that direction where you have to be so fit and so strong and I did a few road preps um especially before my personal best IP ride and that seemed to work really well so I think that's what we're going to try and emulate with this world championships is a bit more of a road prep um, and see how that can affect the form. Um, But at the same time this year, it's, it's a big year. Obviously you always want to do really well at the world championships, but it is a bit of a dress rehearsal per se for the Olympics, which is next year. So if something doesn't go perfectly to plan this year, 
it's frustrating, but as long as we like reflect on it for next year, then that's kind of where the big goal's at. Yeah, so we could essentially put uh, 2023 as a trial for 2024. Yeah, and I think a lot of teams are, are going to be doing that, which is what's going to make these World Championships really exciting because I think we're going to see a lot of the equipment coming out. Um, we're going to p- see people's positions. We're going to see what people's training forms like. Um, so, and I think, and we potentially even see what kind of gears they're riding. So I, I think it's going to be really interesting world championships. And uh, about world championships, uh, do you plan on racing anymore on the road before going to the worlds or is that you done with the roads so far and then off to Glasgow? Um, initially I planned to be done now. Potentially I will have a few smaller Belgian and Dutch races, uh, between now and the world championships for example I am actually racing on Sunday in a smaller Dutch race so that's just nice to kind of keep up the the skills on the road which has kind of been quite a big um, learning curve for me especially when you don't grow up racing these Belgian and Dutch races they're crazy they're chaotic so you can have all the legs you want but if you can't maneuver through the bunch you're learning that it's um it is really difficult um but yeah so hopefully no really big races so no Giro tour for me probably so um the focus will kind of turn to the track especially for the training prep pretty soon well sounds exciting and I wanted to ask you a new set of worlds this year uh putting everything together in a matter of 14 days a little bit less what do you think how do you think that's going to work in terms of like the like in terms in, of having every event with everybody on the same place, same country, quite a small country is gonna be quite hectic. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, having all the other disciplines, it's exciting, but I'm selfishly also a little bit sad because sometimes it means you can't watch everything because you're competing yourself. So if you're a cycling fan who's also an athlete. It's like, no, I can't go watch the events that are on the same time as me. Um, but I think I think it's really good for the fans because they can see everything um, and it all blocks it together. Um, but potentially, yeah, potentially even in terms of logistics for hotels and things, I've heard that it's already been quite difficult um, to get that sort of accommodation and to get around and things like this. But yeah, I think it's a, a really good trial. Um, the only other thing that is a little bit difficult that I can see is for cross-discipline athletes. Uh, this year, I haven't put my hand up for the road because um, I just didn't think the course would suit me and I, I don't see myself as established enough of a road rider yet. But I could see athletes who really want to do road and track. Suddenly, it's like they're, they're mere days apart. Um, but I guess you could say the same for the Tour de France Femmes finishing literally days before the the world championships start on the track so that's always kind of like a bit of a, a thing to balance as well if there's athletes who might be wanting to do more than one discipline um, and I can see that also being for mountain bike um, if athletes wanted to do mountain bike and road or mountain bike and BMX that could also be a thing. I was uh... I was going to ask you at the beginning uh, before you said it uh, yourself that if you were going to race to the tour and if you believed it to be a good preparation for the Worlds because it was literally jumping on from the Tour Femmes to uh, the Worlds. So do you think 
those people, all those riders that decide to go to Tour Femmes, uh, will have a bit of fatigue coming in or will be all in and set with a really good shape? Yeah, look, I've looked at the course for the Tour de France fans and it is not an easy course. It is hard. It is a hard race. Um, So, yeah, it'd be naive to say there's not going to be any fatigue. There will definitely be fatigue for those riders. Um, But I guess it just depends how it's managed and also what kind of form they come up off after um, road tour racing. Like some of my best races on the track I've come off of, not a road tour like Tour de France, I've never done anything like that before, but smaller road tours I've kind of come off and you're going quite well. Um, One thing I think that could be an advantage is that races like the Madison and kind of like those bunch races are a little bit later in the schedule. So they actually have like a few more days. It's just if I would say if you wanted to ride the individual pursuit, which is the first day and you're coming off the Tour de France. Yeah, that might be a little bit tricky. Um, But I think a lot of the riders who will be doing the Tour de France will probably more have their eye on the the Omnium and the Madison and those sorts of events. Absolutely, I can see that happening. And in your terms, uh, will you be racing in the individual pursuit or will you also be taking some other disciplines? I hope that the individual pursuit... So for the record, I haven't been selected on the team yet. So no one's, I think, really been selected. Um, It's still quite a way out. Um, Still, So still vying for selection. But I really hope that if I'm selected that I could do the individual pursuit. It's kind of become my event. I didn't choose it. It just kind of got thrown onto me at some point in my career. And then I, I grew to love it. I don't think anyone loves it. It's it's a horrible race. <laughs> um, I think it was kind of when I was in juniors. I I loved the Omnium. I wanted to do the Omnium. That was my event, and I won the junior national title in the Omnium. And I did the IP, and I wasn't that good at the IP. I think I pretty much got lapped in it every year. Um, but for some reason, at my first junior world championships. Um, I, I wasn't picked for the Omnium I was picked for the team pursuit and I wasn't picked for the IP either but someone pulled out of the IP so there was a spot available like the day before or two days before or something like this and no one really wanted to fill, fill it because it's a big race to jump in for the world championships just on a whim but I was like yeah sure I'll, I'll go do it um, and, I, and I did quite well and I surprised myself and I thought oh I actually kind of like this race and something similar happened a few years later when I went to my first elite world championships, there was a spot open in the IP. And so I jumped in and, and I did it. And once again, I, I really surprised myself. I, I wrote a good time um, and I thought, oh, like maybe I could actually be a pursuiter. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I kind of just kept progressing and growing on that and started putting up better times, better performances. And then at one point it just clicked and I just kind of like cracked that 25, cracked that Australian record and then cracked the 20. And that's when I was like, okay, like I want to be a pursuiter and I want to like keep pushing this this time barrier. So uh, that's the goal for this year again, try this different prep and then just keep pushing that personal best barrier and see if we can crack it again. Absolutely. And it sounds to me like a love story you had with IP. Essentially, you didn't choose <laughs> yeah, love, her. Hate but... story. <laughs> you didn't choose her, but it chose you at the end. Yeah, uh... it like just tested me. 
But uh, it's a good love story, hopefully, and uh, with some happy ending uh, sometime soon. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, uh, before we keep talking about the season and about all these stories, I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned it yourself, uh, you hadn't grown up uh, with a bike like many other athletes. So how do you first get on a bike and uh, how did uh, that turn into this right now? Yeah, so as you said, I didn't grow up on a bike. Um, I actually grew up more in the ocean and the swimming pool. So I was a swimmer. Um, my family are very athletic. We were always in sports, but the main sport that I, my heart was kind of drawn towards was open water swimming and surf lifesaving, which is quite a big sport in Australia. It's really not a thing here, as I've noticed. Um, most people don't know what I'm talking about, but it's pretty much doing racing events in the ocean um, and on the beach. Um, I mean, it's an Olympic discipline. Uh, the open water swimming is, and the surf lifesaving isn't. Uh, so surf lifesaving is really just a sport that they do in Australia, but it's, yeah, it's quite popular. And by 11 or 12 years old, I was training 11 or 12 times a week um, for these sports. You know, I was obsessed with training. I loved it. And a talent identification program from the government, from the South Australian Sports Institute, came to my school and did some testing on some athletes. Oh, did testing on, like, they, they would go from school to school. Um, actually, I don't think they came to my school, but I think I went to the testing day or something because my school didn't do it, but it was, it was for school students. And um, I did the beep tests, some physical testing, and, yeah, I got a letter in the mail a few weeks later saying you should try track cycling and I was like <laughs> what is that no. let's try let's try that again right I was like I really wanted to get in life for like rowing or volleyball or something like I don't know like track cycling and I was like hmm, maybe not <laughs> um and I also got in for sprint canoe so I went to the sprint canoe sessions because I already had been on the ski so I was like oh it's in the water ocean made sense then I went to the cycling session kind of on a whim and they put me on a bike and I just was in love with it. I was like, this is amazing. It's it's fast. It's still endurance, but I'm not just like just the flexibility and freedom that I ended up getting from cycling. Like, because I kind of kept going with it, did a few training sessions. I wasn't very good at it, um, but a triathlon team picked me up. Um, they were called Fuse Multisport. They were little team local team at the time um the coach kind of saw me at school and was like oh can you can you ride a bike and I was like Ooh. and he's like can you run and I was like I'm yeah and he's like yeah can you swim and I was like yeah yeah I can swim really well and so they're like you know we can get you into triathlon so while I was kind of making the the jump I did a few tries and trained in the triathlon team um and that's when I got on a road bike because uh, when you're 13, 14, your parents aren't really going to let you go on road rides if they don't really even know what that is. So uh, that team, like the boys on that team kind of became like my brothers and they showed me around all the roads. And then I discovered like there's this whole world out here that I didn't even know about through my bike and absolutely fell in love with it. So that's kind of when I started making the switch motorcycling. Well, I mean, that's a pretty cool story. Uh, it really sounds like you're in love with it. Uh, it's a uh, IP should to, to take a couple of hints from it, but yeah. And how do you decide at what time, to, what point do you decide? Hey, I really want to do this uh, instead of a gig or a hobby. I want to become mm. a real athlete. I want to keep kicking ass. I love this. This is what I want to do. 
really young. I think I decided that I wanted to be a professional athlete in probably 2008 when the Olympics were on. Like I was eight years old and I was sneaking out to turn on the TV and watch the Olympics. I was like obsessed with it. I didn't care what sport. Um, I remember the Olympic swim team came to my school and I got to meet some of the swimmers and that was like the best day ever. <laughs> um, I was living in Singapore at the time as well. Um, so for them to come all the way, it was on their way to Beijing or maybe on their way back. But I just remember that being such a big moment. And then um, when I was maybe 13 or 14, um, there was a Olympic volleyball player in Australia, Kerry Pothas. She'd won a gold medal in, I think it was Sydney. She published a book and it was called The Business of Being an Athlete. And my dad received it on like a, a press release. Um, he's a, a journalist himself. Um, and he gave it to me and he was like, you know, and it's it's for established athletes, this book. It was like for when you're already an athlete, how to get sponsorship, how to like be professional, all these things. But I read it as like a 13-year-old, 12-year-old. And I was like, oh my gosh, being an athlete is a, is a job. Like you can do this as a job <laughs> and that was when it kind of clicked that I could do this as a job and um yeah kind of from that point I was just like just knew that it was going to be where I work <laughs> at some point so yeah to kind of go through that is 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 nice um I was always doing things on the side like I was never just cycling I always had a job I always studied like all these things as well but um, it never really crossed my mind to do to give up the sport at any point. It was like always going to be like try and go as far and far as far as I can with it. Uh, so the cycling stories are pretty much all started with a book. Uh, that that could make a pretty pretty much of a banger story. Not many people can say that. I'd say. And I have yeah, to. Yeah, I don't know if I've told that story too. I don't. I don't know if I've. I maybe maybe told a few people it because yeah, it was really not. It was a, a random realization when you're that young that it can be a job. You don't even think of it otherwise. No, absolutely. It's something you just see on TV and you enjoy watching, right? Uh, kind of, you could call it like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, I heard Singapore living and uh, just clicked my mind from here, Australia. So you want to tell that story? Yeah. So I grew up really moving around a lot. Um, so it makes a little bit of sense why I've moved here now. Um, my dad's Canadian. My mum's from Darwin, which is a small town north um, in Australia. And yeah, my dad was a travel journalist when we grew up. So we moved all around. So we moved from the east coast of Australia to Singapore, spent five years there when we were growing up, um, back to Australia, um, and then moved like down south to South Australia. So South Australia is kind of where I spent my teenage to early adult years. But yeah, a lot of primary school was actually in Southeast Asia, which was really cool because um, it's a beautiful part of the world. It's somewhere that still makes me feel so nostalgic. And I got to race Jakarta World Cup this year and it like felt almost like homey going back to Southeast Asia, like that like culture and stuff. It's um, it's a great experience to go out with. Yeah, essentially bringing bringing back all those memories and I imagine uh, all those stories that you had uh, back then uh, must be pretty cool. And, yeah. Uh, sounds like like you said you've lived kind of everywhere in the Netherlands right now. Uh, what would you say has been the favorite place so far? Ooh, 
um that's really hard to say I think I'm I'm still looking like for my place um I still like I, I really am, am loving the Netherlands um the only thing is I love doing like having access to climbs like longer climbs and so last year I was living on the Gold Coast and I love living on the Gold Coast I thought that was really fun the climbing was great the water was great the ocean the beaches things like that so I really did love live loving oh my god love living on the Gold Coast last year um met some amazing people but yeah when I joined this team that chapter kind of shut and now I'm trying something completely new so living in the Netherlands is like the complete opposite I'm so far away from the ocean I'm like it's dead flat but there's still like so many beautiful little things about it um and I like that it's a little bit like almost it's quiet where I'm living and uh, more in the suburbs and those sorts of things um but I've also had the chance to travel around a lot this year um I'm not sure where, where in Spain are you at the moment Uh, I live up north in the Pyrenees. I live like uh, so you kind of get where more more or less. I live two hours away from the Tourmalet. yeah exactly yeah that's and that's like it sounds like an absolute beautiful spot in the world so I want to go visit places like that I spent a lot of time in Spain this year um, and I went down to like the south of France um, after the Vuelta as well and checked that out for a week and I was like blown away. I thought it was so beautiful. So I could see myself even there one day. Uh, so if you ever want to ride, just hit me up. I'll be more than happy to. But yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm going to check it out. So I still got to, to find the location that's got the best of everything. But yeah. And but that... it would definitely be in Europe, I think, um, at least for the the most chunk of the year and then home to Australia for the winter uh, the winter time. Winter, I was going to say Aussie winter summer. time. Summer, summer. summer for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Christmas is always summer. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's pretty cool. I gotta say, like uh, when you see people, well, I guess for you guys it's the other way around because we're hoping Christmas to get the snow and everything, and you're probably hoping for Christmas to get a big sunny day on the beach, probably. Yeah, it's like you're checking to see if it's above thirty so you can go to the beach. I can't remember the last time I didn't have Christmas on the beach. <laughs> uh, I definitely can't. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, uh, you said uh, you've been, well, pretty much you've been racing all around the world uh, since you started on the track, especially traveling around uh, Jakarta, Canada, US, everywhere. What would you say has been kind of for you the most special place to race in so far? One of my favorite ones was last year in Milton um, in Canada. So that was really special for me because as an Australian, I don't really get to go to Canada that much because it's so far away. The airfares are super expensive. Um, but my family is all Canadian. So my dad's side, the whole family is Canadian. And a lot of them live not so far from Milton. So we had like a packed out crowd of my family, <laughs> pretty much all cheering for me. And like, it was the first time I'd seen my grandpa in 12 years. And yeah to to then be able to see them all in the crowd and my sister came she lives in Toronto at the moment and I don't get to see her much anymore um yeah so that was probably the most special and I was just coming off the back of a concussion so I really wasn't sure how I would go um and it, then I ended up winning the individual pursuit there and it was my first individual title for a world cup and yeah so to win it there in front of my family was was really special 
I mean, I would say if you asked me to name a better story off a comeback, I wouldn't be able to probably. It was a it was a great race. It honestly, it wasn't the fastest event I've ever done, but maybe that's why it was also so good. Is that it was just really based on the process. I was actually really racing the person next to me and kind of going on my internal feelings rather than like trying to go for my best ever time. I was just going with what I could and trying to optimize what I had in the tank. So that was also like a, a great part of that race. So. Uh, what's going on in your head at that time? Uh, you're there at the start line. Uh, you know you're going to have to chase someone around, uh, kind of a rabbit around a loop. So how's that feeling? What's going through your head at the start and while you're racing? I think my best races are when it's almost all completely autonomous and it's just emptiness. Um, there's a lot of pacing attributes. So if you're too anxious you might go out too fast, but if you're too relaxed, then it's so easy to go out too slow as well. So you really have to kind of tiptoe that that balance. Um, so yeah, I think the most important thing for me was always just having like one or two little keywords that I would kind of repeat to myself when things started getting hard. Um, and when you get into that last kilometer, it's just about digging as deep as you can like it's really always gonna hurt um so I think you you're kind of on that start line knowing that you're gonna suffer and just being prepared for that I think that's such a important part of individual pursuiting because yeah you know it's gonna be hard um and you know you're just gonna have to dig in and when you're scared of that that's when maybe you don't go as deep as you think you're going deep but like you always think you've gone your max but then sometimes you go past that and that's when you're when you're prepared to kind of suffer that's when you can really go past that kind of wall um so yeah I think being on the start line empty mind if you're in the race in the first few laps and you're already thinking then you're probably already lost <laughs> uh you kind of got me curious because you said uh, you had two words you repeated in your head uh, while you're racing so I want to know, kind of know if you can tell us those two words because I'm thinking about uh, something like ketchup and repeating ketchup in your head while you're racing now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it changes every race. So I'll kind of think about, before the race, I'll think about, you know, what's really resonating with me. Maybe there's something in a song that I've been hearing or maybe there's something in the sessions before that, like, was really motivating me. But, for example, in Milton, in, in the race that we're talking about, and in the Olympics, my two words were flat and I thought, was it flat and flat? And, I think it was flat and fast. I'll have to, I'll have to check them. I've got them, I've got them written on my gloves on my Instagram page, actually, so you can see it. But um, they're somewhere if you scroll down, but the flat was probably the, one of the key ones because that's flat splits. So riding the same the same splits every time um but then also keeping like a really flat back because as we know in track cycling it's only getting more and more important to be aerodynamic in our positions so a lot of the time when you're struggling you just want to like hunch your shoulders over and like check that every single watt so that you can get like it's almost like you get more leverage if you just do this like <laughs> it's so silly so when you like really flatten your hips out and like rotate your pelvis that's still way faster like you could save your seconds so 
flat. I always was thinking flat in, in both of those aspects. Uh, for those listening to us, uh, that don't have the chance uh, to see me, like I'm seeing her right now, she's actually doing the positions and then all the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all just make it a video podcast. Uh, indeed, yeah, <laughs> or put a poster reel or something like that showing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, enough with the bikes uh, for a little bit. Uh, we've talked about the cycling career, how it started, how it's going, uh, how it's hoping, how you're hoping it uh, to go. But uh, we haven't really talked about uh, what you do outside of cycling because many people might not believe it, but uh, cyclists, like every other people, do have a life outside of their sport. So what is it uh, your life consists of once you're, well, you got a day off or you're done with training for a day? Well, that's changed a lot lately. <laughs> um, oh, interesting story this, coming. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's really just to do with like where I am. So before this year, I was in Australia. So the kind of Australian lifestyle, and I've only really, really realized it as a quintessential Australian lifestyle since I've moved overseas and it's so different here. But the quintessential Australian lifestyle is like you wake up really early, you do your training really early. We're talking people meet for rides at five, six, sometimes even oh. earlier savage and yeah but it's normal and then you know you finish your ride and you've got like the whole day and so you might have lunch and then you um before for for quite a long period of my career I was like working and I was studying so I was working at a place called Eco Caddy and I was actually a tour guide and it was like a little bike on the front and little carriage on the back and I would pedal people around the city and and talk to them about you know what um kind of give them a guide and and chat to them and sometimes you have themed experiences um and then I'm studying a bachelor of law and bachelor of science so I might have been going to uni but then a big portion of the day was spent outside you know we spend a lot of time in the beach and the ocean um I love my camera so photography but it was often like a lot of nature stuff um here it's a little bit different I'm nowhere near the ocean um and I think the kind of road cycling attitude that I'm learning since being on the team is like doing a lot less so I've cut back my study a lot and it's like a lot more recovery and resting time now um so that's one thing I'm adjusting to a little bit um but yeah I'd say like my my study has always taken up a a quite a bit of my spare time but yeah always been a really outdoors nature person so in Australia would be like finish a training session go down to the beach go for a swim um you know especially where I'm from you get dolphins and and beautiful things like that go down the coast it's probably like my favorite way to spend an afternoon or an evening I mean it doesn't sound that bad of a plan I'd say for uh for a good recovery you swim in the ocean with dolphins uh so it's more like a movie yeah but... Yeah, it's lovely, but there's really not none of those around here. <laughs> not many not dolphins in in the Netherlands. Not in the Netherlands, no, no, not many, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask. Uh, you kind of got me curious again. You said you were studying a bachelor of law and a bachelor of science, which is quite interesting, I'd say, because being able to keep a sport, an athlete life with all of that, uh, doesn't sound easy at all. So how are you keeping with that right now? 
yeah, as you said, it's really not easy. And interestingly, I've almost found it a little bit harder as the years go on. Um, when I started a, a double degree, I really didn't see myself being like a full-time athlete so early in my career. Um, but things change. Um, so I was kind of thinking maybe my first Olympics might be 2024 or something like that. Um, but then I just had this kind of like rapid ascension and and made the Olympic team for 2020. So things got shuffled back. So that's kind of why I'm still studying because I have been studying. This is my sixth year. <laughs> I don't know where the years have gone. Like, goodness. And um, I thought waking up at five was savage. Ah, <laughs> oh, sixth year. It's a five-year degree. So technically I'm really not that, it's not like I'm too far over now, but still six. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah at the moment my managing of the study load has really been when I know things are going to be hectic and I know things are going to be crazy I just take on a few less subjects so for example this semester I'm doing two which is considered half a load um because I knew I was moving overseas and it would be quite tricky um before the Olympics I did one uh but then for the rest of the years I've actually done pretty much close to full-time study um, I've just over the years also gotten more efficient at doing a little bit less but at the same time I'm also very competitive and I always want to have the best grades possible so I've had to learn to be accepting also of the fact that the people in my classes or the people grading that's uh, with students who are full-time students you know like this is what they're doing so it's really hard sometimes not to compare yourself to people who are doing it full-time yeah i mean that's very nice sounds to me like you're quite competitive but uh, yeah. it's also it's also something good i'd say especially for uh, the career you're following right now the pathway and if, if you're not competitive you're really not going anywhere if you don't want to win uh, with all your will uh, you're not really gonna get anywhere so that's quite cool so how much left i gotta ask of that batch double double degree yeah. um it depends how quickly i choose to do it really the only challenge that I might be facing in the next few years is those kind of face-to-face -face classes, especially with the science. So my science major is marine biology and um, there are a few laboratory hours and things like that, but maybe we can work out an exchange or something like this. Um, if people have any advice who are listening, then <laughs> maybe they can send me a message or something like this, but yeah, I might have to kind of do some sort of exchange over here in Europe because I can really see myself more in Europe for the foreseeable future. So I'll have to do it as an international student like I'm currently doing it. Uh, I was about to be my next question. How are you keeping with all the online teaching and all the long distance, I imagine? Yeah, to be honest, I don't find it too bad because I was really doing a lot of it online anyway before. But technically, I'm I'm not a remote student. Like technically, up until this point, I've actually been a on-campus student. So um, I am a kind of self-directed learner, though. So that's helpful. I'm not really someone who always has to be in there full time. Um, and law is a little bit easier to do remotely as well because if you do your readings and you know, it's all online, it's all in the databases, it's, you know, and they do have a lot more flexible kind of um, seminars. Yeah, I mean, that's right enough. Uh, keeping all of that on top of cycling, on top of everything else, sounds like uh, you got life pretty figure out, I'd say. But, Not uh, always. 
<laughs> I, yeah, I've had some pretty shocking days with uni lately. It's, it's, I'm not really a, like, oh, I'll just do a little bit of study here and there, like, once a day. No, I, if an assignment is due, I would do it all the day before. Like, it's terrible. I'm the worst at managing my time. So... <laughs> it's um it seems like we got it together but i promise you i do everything last minute i gotta give to you you made it telling you were on top of everything so uh that's what matters really no <laughs> i get it done i always get it done but just not in the uh most structured and organized way sometimes well, i'd like to be better at that but... <laughs> what matters is getting it done essentially yeah and uh, slowly driving our way uh, back into cycling. Uh, kind of curious. Uh, we talked about the, your favorite place to race, but I haven't asked you what your favorite race has been so far. You said at the beginning that Roubaix was quite special lining up there for you this year, as it's obviously it's a big monument. And like, who doesn't dream of lining up there, obviously? But uh, what would you say has been the most special place like the mo most special race so far because you were also at the olympics recently which is uh, not many people can say that really yeah the like the olympics is hard to top i think <laughs> like the olympics is the olympics and i think that's probably the most been the most career defining race for me so far not just because of going to the olympics but like the prep before the pressure before the whole experience and journey that you go through with your teammates and everything and to to just that one race it's like it's really hard to compare that with with anything else um but I think that's also attributed to just the Olympics for track cycling and for team pursuit maybe I, my answer might be different if it was like I'd been to the Olympics for road cycling or something because maybe you're not going through with like that like team but at the point when when I did go to Tokyo I went for the women's team pursuit and there were five of us there were actually eight before and it slowly got cut down so that was like enough that was already like drama and heartbreak for some and like it was already so emotional going through this cohort it would get smaller it would get bigger there was a postponement we'd trained for a whole nother year um yeah, I think it was just like so much background for Tokyo that it was just such a, like a big lead up. And and we then when we got there, we actually didn't perform as good as we wanted to. Like we weren't happy with it. We we were really upset. But then you still go through that with the people too. Um, so I think that's probably why Tokyo has made the biggest mark on me. That's uh, fair enough. I mean, I gotta say, uh, not many people get to be an Olympic Olympians in their life in general, especially not that young, uh, like you were. So, how does it feel with uh, you're twenty four right now, probably twenty three, yeah. How does it feel to know that you've already accomplished a goal that for many people is a life goal, and not many people actually get even to achieve it. And you're 24 and you're already done with it and on to the next chapter. Yeah, it's, it's I guess, a, a little bit of a relief um, because, you know, I think everyone's guilty of putting, like, time stamps of the, on their life a bit. Like, oh, I want to go to this Olympics or that Olympics. So to, to go to Tokyo, I almost feel like to go to Tokyo and then, like, not get the result we wanted it's like, all right, I've, I've done 
my dress rehearsal of the Olympics. I know what the Olympics is like. I've done it. Now the next Olympics I go to, I want the gold medal, you know? So I think it's it's definitely nice having been, whereas if you're, and you know, and we, and it's, it's, it's nice having been and had a bad result as well as going and having an amazing results. I think both are, are quite productive for like your later career. Um, but yeah, it, it is definitely something that you're like, I didn't expect to do it so early. And when I got named on the team, I think I was, I think I was 19 or something um, because then it got postponed. But then there was also that feeling of like absolute heartbreak when it got cancelled. We didn't know it was postponed by the time that we just thought it was cancelled. Um, so you like, I felt like I had the goal and I had achieved it. And then it was like, felt like it got taken away from me. So I was just like so hungry, even after being selected, just like to like keep my keep my foot in the door to win there, to do well. And then when 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 I got home from the Olympics, I wasn't satisfied. So that gave me like this extra burst of energy to like go. And I really wanted to win the IP at um, Roubaix Worlds, um, and just like I wanted to attack that race so bad. Like I I was in quarantine the day after the Olympics doing like a four hour ergo like I did a 20 minute max test the day after the Olympics because I was like I'm so motivated after the Olympics even after achieving this like goal of going I just was like wanted the next thing and I didn't actually get to race Roubaix world because um, I wasn't allowed to leave the country the government had really strict COVID rules and I didn't find out until right before the world that I couldn't go so I'd done all this training but that's okay um but yeah I think there's the the goal of going and then you and you do it but as an athlete then you just like immediately switch to the next thing and that was like that that world championships and then it was the road season and then it was the com games and like it was just straight away and yet you uh try and make us believe you're not on top of everything i don't think (laughs) (laughs) maybe i was just like a bit crazy after after learning so i was like in quarantine doing these crazy turbo sessions it was oh uh, I don't I, I look back and I'm like why <laughs> I mean uh probably paid off uh makes makes it makes it all worth it. it I think it didn't though that's the sad thing is that I didn't get to race the Roubaix Worlds <laughs> sorry <laughs> I like did this massive training block I got like did suffered through so many training and then just like but on, on, the, so on, the, on the bright side you got a really good uh shape uh we could call yeah. it yeah exactly. yeah and and one thing that we tried to do after that is um we actually did a trial an ip trial because i was like well i may as well see how my form is so i did a little trial in training um and i didn't ride how i wanted to i rode really slow and so we were like okay that block that i did didn't work so we're not going to repeat that training again so four hours on the turbo a day in quarantine actually didn't get me riding as good as I wanted to (laughs) that's the cool thing about IPs though there's actually really different ways to train it you know um I've kind of been working that out over the last few years you've got like Ashton Lambie who's done like this like really middle distance runner prep so I was like trying to kind of emulate that but it doesn't work for everyone I mean, well, I guess it's all about taking little wins and little win there is knowing that that block didn't work and on to the next thing, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And in terms of cycling area, uh, you've talked about a few complicated moments, but what would you say has been the most difficult one so far for you? I think I think the one at the time that hurt the most but ended up gaining the most was when I was about yeah it was 2019 so I was 18 I when I finished school in 2017 I really wanted to go overseas and race right like so I saved up money did all these things and I really wanted to go to America but couldn't find a team that wanted me and it was too expensive to go so I took a year in Australia saved my money trained really hard started studying and the following year I, I actually started getting some results and the Australian team categorized me and so I got to and I had a finally got an NRS team and so like a national series team and so I got to go to Belgium um, for three months it was supposed to be and at the end of the three months was kind of the start of the Olympic selection period and at the time, I did, had no one thought that I was even in contention for the Olympics. It was not like I deep down wanted to, but I hadn't made those intentions. I hadn't told anyone that. Um, and also, I really hadn't, like, I had no results on the track. Like, I wasn't good enough yet. Um, so I went to Belgium, got 10 days into this, this uh, racing block, and like crashed and just snapped my wrist in half like and right before the start of these olympic selections and i was just lying on the road and that's all i could think about was like fuck like the olympics is done like i'm not gonna get selected now because look at this and it was yeah i ended up having to go home so i missed my whole europe racing block i didn't get to do any of that it was my first time like overseas racing as well and i just remember that being such a hard time because i had to go home and I was back in Australia. It was so miserable in Australia, cold, rainy. I'd stopped uni because I like oh, I'd taken a little bit of time off uni because I was planning on racing, but I really had nothing to do. And I just I got back on the bike after my surgeries and stuff, and I sucked. <laughs> I was so bad, and I had to cover my power and not even look on the turbo. And I could only do turbo. I couldn't ride on the road. And I the training wasn't working for me I gained weight I wasn't happy I was not enjoying my studies I wasn't enjoying a lot and I just remember like deciding okay like I'm just gonna train by feel and I'm just gonna train hard and I pretty much wrote my own program for a few months there trained so hard and um from that injury I that was kind of I went to my first Oceana's and um before the Oceanas, you know, I still just was coming back from this injury and I was like riding amazing. And I went to the head coach and I was like, oh, like I really want to just put my foot in the door for Olympic selection. And I almost felt like I got laughed out of the room. Like everyone was like, no, like why would we we've got eight other girls who are really good athletes, why would we pick you? And they gave me these crazy targets to hit at the Oceana Championships. And I just remember training so hard after that. And I almost like overtrained because of this injury. Like I felt like I had to almost overcompensate and I just went so deep into myself. And then I went to these championships and ended up just riding like 10 second PBs or something like crazy personal bests. And yeah, I really attribute it to the injury. And that was the start of like getting selected for the Olympics was that race. 
Um, but I really attribute it to just like three months of like really, really struggling after after this injury, um, kind of feeling like I'd finally saved the money and finally taken the time off and finally like had this dream to go to the road and race and stuff and just like feeling like it's all gone and then rebuilding after that. I want to ask you, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, not, I'm sure not many people share uh, that kind of stuff. But what do you recall the most about that time? Um, I think the thing I remember the most is <laughs> being on the turbo in my boyfriend's garage, <laughs> just like crying because I couldn't even hold 200 watts like I just couldn't do any power and just putting my towel over my what uh, my garment or my wahoo or whatever it was and just doing four or five minute efforts just based on perceived power just going as deep as I could um and then I also remember like just feeling so overwhelmed because I had this dream that I wanted to just be even considered in selection for the Olympics but I knew that everyone around me would think it was crazy. And I just remember like calling the meeting with the, the top coaches and just like being so anxious to like tell people, like to actually tell people about this dream because I hadn't told anyone. Um, and I just remember having to work up the courage to even make those intentions known. You're off for enough on you. I mean, Hard work and uh, after the uh, grinding your ass out uh, got you to the Olympics and uh, you got the gold. Many people uh, told you you wouldn't be able to. So I'd say that's a pretty cool thing, uh, being able to accomplish what you, especially when people tell you, now nah, you've no chance. And then you make it, uh, for me personally, is when it feels the best. And you, you were like, look at them people. And you're like, guess you were wrong. Yeah, yeah that's. I think that that did feel nice, but it really didn't get easier from there. I think um, once I did a, a good performance at the Oceanas, they were like, okay, you've done well. Now it starts. <laughs> and so from then on, I pretty much wasn't allowed to have a bad day until until the World Championships. When I made the World Championships, that's when I knew I was probably on the Olympic team. But from October through to February, uh, we were training multiple times a week on the track and I I don't think I had a bad day in that time because I knew if I had a bad day I'd go home like it would be all over because yeah we had eight girls and it needed to go down to five um, and everyone was really talented as well so that was quite a stressful time <laughs> that was a especially for, for such a young athlete it was like going to the, all those world cups you know I, I wasn't selected for any world cups that year and then suddenly I was on the list for all these World Cups and I was going to them all and I was like a reserve rider and then suddenly I was in the qualifying and I was in the round one and I was in the final and I was doing laps and, you know, and so it, it was a really, really turbulent time. <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like pretty, pretty little for months for you, but uh, that definitely ended up paying off, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we've spoken about the sad moments, but uh, kind of uh, to start finishing and wrapping everything has uh, been spoken so far. I would ask you to, I would like you to share uh, what the best experience has been so far and uh, end up on the happy note. Yeah, oh, there's been so many. Like, I wouldn't do it unless there were so many good moments. 
um, and there has been a lot. There's been ones that I think are just such a happy moment from a team perspective. Um, for example, winning Brisbane World Cup as a team, like in the team pursuit, that was my first World Cup win. And I think we broke the Australian record at the time. We rode really fast. And I think like as a team, that was such a happy moment for me because the girls in my team as well were all world champions at the time. So, and I was like the only one who wasn't a world champion. And I just remember like these girls were my idols and I just won a world cup with them. And I, I was 19 and I was like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> um, so that was definitely a really happy moment. And maybe it's not a super happy moment, but definitely a moment of accomplishment for me that I still, that still motivates me is um, my time that I rode, I think a year ago now, a bit over a year ago now, um, when I broke the 20 in the IP. That was a, that was a huge deal for me because I, I didn't think it was possible. <laughs> to be honest. And then I was just at this local state title race and I had no prep for it. I'd done two track sessions and I just had like the ride of my life. And I, I, I it was just incredible. And I looked up at the time and I was like, surely not but then I also knew like yeah I'd done that um and my mum was there afterwards and yeah it was just like that was really nice because I just didn't you know when you just don't think you're capable of something and then you achieve it that, that was and that just really brought the momentum forward for like yeah let's let's get this time even further down and I haven't broken that one yet that was a really good ride but hopefully soon yeah exactly uh cheers to that hopefully soon well, I mean, uh, I wanted to, first of all, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for all the stories you've been sharing. And I would uh, like to ask you my last question, which is if you could give me a song to put at the end of the podcast, uh, just something you want to finish your interview with, and we'll leave everybody with that. Ooh, a song. Now I've just forgotten every song that I know. <laughs> <laughs> let's do let's do fresh start fever by yumi at six that's always one of my good warm-up songs that i use uh, that's the, my warm-up song that i use for that ip okay so we'll leave everybody with fresh start fever thank you mate <laughs> uh best of luck uh this season truly really has been a pleasure having you and we'll be uh, keeping an eye on you great thank you so much for having me it's been really nice Joke, don't go let it be too Pour my drink, this just got physical I'm on a new wave, it's getting visceral Going toe to toe to see how you go I'm in pain, say yes, it is painful Oh, heart of mine Sing a sad song, sing a sad song, won't you? Oh, heart of mine Sing a sad song And it's a fresh start, fever
Solve it. I'm a hard act to follow.